We're still in our study of Mark, but we're going to allow the kids to go out into the kids' area. I see people waving at me. Thank you for that nice reminder. I'm glad we're getting into that habit again. We've been out of the habit for two years, and it's great to have the exodus again, isn't it? <laughs> and so now, as a gift to moms, we're going to give you 30 seconds of uninterrupted silence. <laughs> and then afterwards, maybe a hot meal. Do you happen to remember, this is, I'm dating myself on looking way back to a commercial. Do you happen to remember a frazzled mom, and she's trying to get stuff done around the house, and the announcer comes on and says, this woman has not had a hot meal in six years. Because <laughs> she's always doing stuff for everybody else. But moms, you are appreciated. We value you. We're going to talk about how Jesus calms a storm. And we're going to look at what's the real point of this incident in Mark chapter 4. Because it's not the main point that most sermons are built on, quite frankly. Let me read today's passage. It's found in Mark 4, starting at verse 35. And then we're going to see how this incident is not all about us, even though many pastors tend to preach it that way. Starting at verse 35, Mark chapter 4. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High winds were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. That was high waves, not high winds. The winds were breaking into the boat too, but the waves were the thing that was most important because it was swamping the boat. Verse 38, Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion, and the disciples woke him up, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. And suddenly, the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. And then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, a point that people try to extract very often from this very passage is, Jesus will get you through the storms of your life. That's true. It's a good point, but I would go so far as to say it's not the main point, and you'll see why in a couple of moments. It's not a bad thing to reach that conclusion, and I'm grateful that Jesus will get us through the storms of life, but if we press that issue a little too much, then we start to make this passage all about us, and it's all about Jesus' power rather than his identity, and that's the main point. His identity and his character are what Mark is trying to reveal to us through this true incident when Jesus stilled the storm. So what is the main focus? It's found in verse 41. What's the question that the disciples ask Jesus when they're scared out of their wits because of the storm about to swamp the boat? Do you care? Do you care about us? Don't you care that we're going to drown? 
Well, we're going to find out that this is something very important. It's all about the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? Let's work our way through the passage. Verse 35, we see that Jesus, first of all, is the one who actually sent them out into that storm. I've talked before about the geography of the Sea of Galilee and how the mountains around it can have warm winds coming across from the west and swoop down onto the lake, and especially right around dusk, that's when some of the big storms can come. It can be a hot air and maybe not even any rain. It can be just a windstorm at times, and it will really froth up that lake in a hurry. And that's what was happening here. But it was Jesus who sent them, sent them there. He left the crowds behind where he had been ministering, and he's the one who said, hey, let's cross to the other side. Remember that he had been out there in the cove of the parable of the sower in the boat, so all they had to do was turn around and start paddling away or put up the sail, and across they went. Now, we see in verse 36 something that's peculiar. Other boats were with them. How many of you have ever heard a pastor talk about the other boats that were with them? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I've never heard anybody address that situation because it's not answered. Our questions about the other boats that were with them, Mark doesn't go into any further detail about that. Did they see that the storm was coming? and say, mm -mm, we're not going across, so they turned around and hightailed it back to shore. Were they swamped? I think that would have been mentioned had that been the case, but nothing further is said. Why is that important? I think it's important because it's a detail as though Mark is recalling the real incident and he's remembering it the way we tend to remember incidents. It really happened, and that's one of the things that popped in. Let me give you an illustration. Fourth grade, when I broke my arm on the playground at school during recess, I remember my grandfather was the one that picked me up not my mom. My mom was in a meeting downtown Phoenix. My grandfather was visiting, so she called him. He came in his rambler. That's dating the incident. But I also remember that rambler because I was lying down with my arm in a makeshift splint in the back seat, and strangely, I thought, who thought it was a good idea to get this really scratchy cloth for upholstery in a car? This is so scratchy. This is awful. And why is that detail in there? Because it just happened. Every time I think about that incident, I think of the scratchy cloth. So when Mark says other boats were with them, he's just throwing in a little parenthetical statement because that's what was popping into his head at the time. If somebody was crafting this carefully, they might have edited out some of those details to keep the plot moving forward. Does that have anything to do with the plot? No, not really. So why did he include it? Because it just happened. <laughs> I think it adds validity to what's going on here. And then verse 37, a fierce windstorm, or in the NIV, a squall came up, stirred up the waves. And the waves were so high, as I misspoke and said it was the wind that was breaking into the boat, but it was actually the waves. The water was coming in over the side. And Joy and I, thanks to you guys sending us to Israel, got to see a real boat that had been uncovered several years ago that's in a museum now. So we got to see the size of that. Now, going from that edge of the curtain to that edge of the curtain is just about the length of a boat, the size of which we're talking about. Those were the fishing boats, anywhere from 26 to 28 feet in length. I am just an inch shy of six feet, so if you laid me down, that would be the width of the boat, not terribly wide. So you could get about a dozen people, maybe 15 if they were crammed together in there, in a boat like that, and the sides of the boat didn't come up all that high. So it's really easy to see why it wouldn't take terribly high waves to start putting water over into a ship like that. And they were scared to death. 
The disciples were scared. And there's a word there that's going to become important because there are two different words for that in the same passage. And Jesus, verse 38, we see he was sleeping at the back of the boat, another detail here, with his head on a cushion. I remember going fishing one time with my dad. We were on Lake Powell in Arizona, and we had rented a boat, and they had some life preservers, and I got really tired from swimming one time, and I laid down, and that life preserver was soft enough that you could use it as a little cushion, put your head down on there. Why is that in there? Because it just happened. It's another crazy but necessary detail in Mark's mind to say this is what took place and this is how it happened. And so they wake him up. They're probably saying, Jesus, Jesus, Master, we're about to drown. Don't you care that we're about to drown? Now, to me, this is a wow moment. Don't you care that we're about to drown? We tend to get so self-focused when we're in a trial, do we not, that it's easy for us to start thinking or even speaking it out loud, God, don't you care about this situation? I've got to tell you, looking through the pandemic in the last two years plus, and then looking to see Russia and what they're doing to Ukraine, seeing some of the other injustices in our world unfolding, seeing leadership that doesn't seem like much leadership at all in very high places, I become very frustrated. And it's easy for all of us to see these things in our real world and to start thinking, okay, God, if you're really a just God and if you know what's going on, if you're truly sovereign, if you're really in charge, why aren't you doing something about that? Because we want his power. If we want to be able to harness his power for our benefit, we would like to say, like the moms that are out the side of the soccer field trying to connect their brain to their son's leg and going, kick, kick the ball. Kick the ball, son. You can see the parents. They're off at the sidelines doing that stuff. We would like to do that and hook up our brain to God sometimes and say, smite that guy, Lord, smite that guy. Don't we feel that at times? I do. Confession time, I do. And then God has to rake me over the coals with his Holy Spirit and say, stop it. You're not me. You can't tell me what to do. I am in, I'm in control here. If I'm allowing certain things to happen, it's because I see the big picture. You don't. You have to keep trusting my character and not just want me for your own purposes. And I think that's some of what's starting to get uh, wrapped up into this story here. It's easy for them to want to say, Jesus, do something about that. We want your power. And yet he's going to call them out on that. Um, verse 39, Jesus did get up. He rebuked the wind. He said to the waves, quiet. Be still, something we're trying to work real hard on Callie's dog these days. And it'd be really nice if you could just have that magic potion to be able to say it at the right time and have instant response like that. We're, we're not quite there yet. She's getting better. But in this case, he spoke to the winds and the waves and just said, be still, boom. And the word that is used here, I had to kind of look it up. It means the same word that's translated very often, abated in English. And it doesn't mean slowly or incrementally. It means literally it fell down so that the waves literally just crashed. They fell down and everything became instantly quiet. So for the wind to stop as though somebody just shut off the fan and for the waves to completely die down and the water was as smooth as glass, that's unusual. That is unusual enough that now these guys are actually terrified and he says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Verse 40, do you still have no faith? And I had to dig into that because I thought, why would he ask, 
do you still have no faith? They did wake him up. So they must have figured he was going to do something about that, and yet he's still asking, why do you have no faith? What's the timing involved in that, and why is that important? Verse 41, the disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked. That's the main point. They had just come from the shore where he had been teaching and where they had seen him do other miracles, so they knew he was Messiah, or at least it was starting to dawn on them that this man was the promised Messiah, and yet here they're saying, yeah, but who is this guy? Even if he is the Messiah, he's not the kind of Messiah we were expecting. That's crazy. They were terrified this time. Two different words for scared. One was they were terrified, and this was that one. They were more afraid after the storm than they were in the middle of the storm. Now, you'd think that once he had killed the storm, he'd spoken to it and it died down, that they would be relieved and they'd go, thank you, Lord, good deal, now we're safe. But instead, they became really, really scared. That shows something is going on in their hearts that shows them they got the main point. And it wasn't just about God's power, it was about his deity. There are two incorrect interpretations that I think I need to point out because there's some crazy false teaching going on in our world today, and I want you to be able to avoid that. It's my job as a shepherd to keep you away from the wolves, and there's some wolves out there. Some people try to say that Jesus was rebuking a demonic wind, and they will use that phrase. Do you see that anywhere in this passage? No, it's not there. There are no other passages around to show that that should be connected with some other passage and to say it's a demonic wind. It was a wind. And the reason I say that that's important, some people can start to reach and add things to Scripture rather than just looking to see what is there for us. And we need to beware of that because we can get off in the deep weeds if we start thinking, ooh, I've come up with a great interpretation for this one. This is really wacko, and I love it, and so this is what I think happened. That's our opinion, and our opinions can be really wrong. We want to make sure that we're looking accurately at what is here for us today. That's why I think it's important for us to say it's not all about us. It's not all about our ability to tap into God's power so that he can take care of stuff that we want him to take care of, and then we miss his character. Second misconception, some commentators, even a couple that I used to kind of revere, and I think, oh, buddy, I like most of your stuff, but man, you got this one way out in the deep weeds. I, I disagree with you on that one. They try to connect this story with the story of Jonah. But if you're going to do that, it should be for contrasts and not comparisons because there's so many differences and not very many similarities. Yes, there was a boat involved, but that's about it. I mean, there's really not that much that you can try to connect with Jonah. Jonah was actually running from God, whereas Jesus is God, and he's in the boat, so he's doing the right thing. There's just not anything that you can connect with the story of Jonah, in my opinion, and make it stick to the main point. And besides, it takes us away from the main point, which is, again, why we need to read what does God have for us in his word that's right there in the scripture itself, in the passage. So here's the main point. Who is this man? Let's imagine for a moment that we are Jewish. Right. Let's all put on our Jewish yarmulkes or thinking caps. <laughs> and in the Jewish mindset, those of us who are Jewish are thinking, who can control the weather but God alone? That's their mindset. We've already seen Jesus do miracles, and we've seen him teach in a way that's authoritative because he's not quoting from this rabbi or that rabbi. He's saying, I say to you, which means he is speaking with the kind of authority we just don't see any around here today. 
And then there are several psalms that speak to this. I don't have time for a lot of them. I'm going to give you two good examples. This is something the Jews would have definitely been aware of. Psalm 65, and I'm just going to excerpt it. You should read the whole psalm. It's beautiful. 65, the first part of verse 5 and the first part of verse 7. Listen to this and see how this might apply to Mark chapter 4. You answer our prayers by performing awesome acts of deliverance. Have they just been through an awesome act of deliverance? Yeah. Oh, God, our Savior. Who was it who did this awesome act of deliverance? God, our Savior. You calmed the raging seas and their roaring waves. Sounds applicable. So in the Jewish mindset, they're thinking, who but God alone controls the raging seas and the winds and the waves? It's God. And then listen to this one from Psalm 89, 89, 8 and 9. Who is like you? This is one of several. Who is like you? There's none other like you. We sing a song. There's none like you. Who is like you? And they ask that. That's a poetic way of saying, there ain't nobody else out there like that. God and God alone can do this. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the what? The surging sea. When its waves mount up, what does he do to them? He stills them. So the psalm doesn't only say that God stills the seas. It also asks, who is like you? There is none of That's the Jewish mindset. Only one person is in charge of the weather, and that's God. So when these boys are in the boat, and Jesus, who to that point in their mindset is a human being who's going to be their Messiah, and suddenly he does something that only God can do, they ask, who is this man? Two words that meant they were afraid. Verse 40, they were afraid. Verse 41, they were terrified. That's a reiteration of what I just said. Could there be anything more frightening than almost drowning in a terrible storm in a small boat? Apparently, yes. <laughs> Evidently, with them, the thing that was so much more frightening than that was seeing God do something that only God can do, and yet it's not the guy that they were thinking was God. Terrified them. I remember when Callie, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. When Callie was a little bitty girl, and we lived in Tecumseh at that time, and there was a big black lab across the street from us, Bella, sweet dog, but it was a big dog. And big black dogs appear more threatening for some reason. I don't know because they're big or maybe it's because, I don't know. So Callie is very afraid of a big black dog, but she's also deathly afraid of the dark. You would not get her to go upstairs if the light wasn't turned on to climb up there. She had to wait and grab her mommy's hand. This is, I'm thinking Mother's Day, so this is what pops to mind. And Joy would say, it's okay, I'll walk with you up there. And she'd turn on the light, and she'd, you know, rub her forehead and put her to sleep and stuff, and all was good. So I had one job. I'm staying home with Callie. I'm supposed to keep her safe, and I lose Callie. And I, I, mean, I lost her. I couldn't find her. I looked around everywhere. I looked in the garage, in the little loft up there where we made a fort. You know, she was nowhere to be found. And I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to be in such hot water. And I was kind of concerned because it was going to get dusk, and I figured it's going to get dark soon. And did she stray away? Is she at a neighbor's house? Did she go to the park down the street? I, I'm on my bike. I'm running around looking in the neighborhood. I start calling neighbors. Can you keep your eye out for Callie? I was starting to get a little panicky. I even called the cops. And a lady dispatcher answered, and she goes, trust me on this one, Dad. We lose our kids once in a while. It's going to be okay. She said, 
let me ask you to do one thing, and I say this from experience. Look again, even if you've looked in some of the same rooms, but look again. Sometimes they'll surprise you. And, but call me back and let me know how you're getting on because we will send somebody out to drive through the neighborhood. And I said, okay, thanks. So sure enough, I went again, but I thought, I went upstairs and I looked up there before, but this time I really started looking and I went up to our bedroom, not Callie's bedroom, the kid's bedroom. I went to our bedroom and looked on the other side of the bed where there's this little tiny one foot wide gap between the bed and the, and the wall. And there she is asleep on the floor. <laughs> on the floor in my bedroom in the dark and I so I calmly got her up called the cops back and said it's all good we found her and uh, so then I was asking Callie why did you come up here oh the big black doggy was coming across and she was so afraid of that that she was more afraid of, of the dog than she was of the dark and when I say that I make a comparison here to say that there is something far more terrifying than our physical well-being being threatened by whatever natural disaster is happening. More frightening than a tornado, more frightening than a hurricane, or a windstorm that's swamping your boat. There's something more frightening for that, and we need to reclaim that awe-inspired reverence for the fear of a God who controls everything, including the weather. That's why I think this is in here. That's why I think Mark included some of these details and put them in the order that he did because it really happened that way. And Jesus was trying to teach these disciples, it's not all about my power to make life easier for you. It's about, do you still trust my character? Because of course I care about you. I cared about you enough to be able to still the storm for one thing. But even if not, even if I had not done that, wouldn't you know that I'm still good? Dennis called me earlier this week to tell me that he'd been thinking about that. Why do we say God is good all the time? Is God really good? What does that mean? And he looked up good in one of his Vines books so he could look at some of the cross-references. God is quintessentially, continually, always, perfectly good. He will never be not good. He can never change. He will never be even one iota less than good. And so God is saying, do you trust me that I'm still going to be good for you even if things are going bad for you at the moment? Do you trust my character? Do you trust my heart? That's a good lesson. And that's the main point, I think, in this stilling the storm. Jesus asks, why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? Faith in what? Faith that... If they had his power, they could just command the waves. And here's another one of these. I'm concerned about it. Uh, it comes in some circles where people say that if you just invoke the name of Christ, that you can command these things to happen. Well, if that's true, why can't we just command Dennis's leg to grow back after he got it amputated? Why don't we just command COVID to be gone? Why don't we just command the person who lost his job to get the new job tomorrow? We could go around commanding all this stuff. That would kind of mean that we were like God, wouldn't it? And that's not what he's saying here. Don't you trust me enough, he says, that even when things look like they're falling apart all around you, you can still trust my heart because I am good and I will always be good and I will always do the best thing for you for eternity and not just temporarily. So when they say, don't you care? That's getting right to his character. I think that's why he was offended. When somebody attacks your character, it goes deep. There was a deacon that tried to kick me out of another church years ago. And he stood up on a Sunday night when we had a full house of people, and he said things about me that just were not true. 
He made them up. One of the only times I've seen that happen, especially in a public setting like that, I was cut to the quick because I knew that I was the shepherd who had been pouring my life out for these folks, and he claimed otherwise, and he said some things, specific things that were just lies. They were made up, and I felt so attacked. I felt violated in my character, and so I was incensed, and I would imagine that if these guys are attacking Jesus' character, they're attacking the character of God himself, and he wasn't going to just let that one ride. So that's why he rebuked them. And I think he's saying, you've got to learn to trust my character, folks. It was their lack of faith in his character that he rebuked. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I started reading up on him a little bit because I started thinking about world events that are happening today and people who actually put their faith on the line and who were wrestling with difficult decisions and morality. He was a guy, German theologian, a Lutheran. Uh, he was a pastor. He was a guy who was really struggling with what to do as the rise of the Nazi regime was happening. And he's thinking, is it ever okay morally, scripturally, is it ever okay to take another person's life if that person is threatening the lives of millions of people? And he was arrested for being allegedly a part of a plot to kill Hitler. He was imprisoned. Uh, he wrote a lot. He had been very outspoken in his opposition to the Nazi regime and, of course, to Hitler. And then just after he had finished leading a worship service in the prison camp, they led him away. And on his way out, he said, well, this is the end. For me, it's the beginning of life. And he was killed. And I think he was trusting in the character of God at that moment. He said, for me, this is the beginning God loved me enough to take care of my eternal needs so that they're going to send me to heaven, and I'm okay with that. Because if I'm dying, I'm dying with a clear conscience, knowing that I prayed about it, and I'm doing what I felt in my spirit was the God-honoring thing to do, even if other people disagreed with me. I have to do only which God calls me to do, and I can do no less. And he lost his life because of it. It's kind of like what we see, I think, sometimes like the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. Many of us are very familiar with that. They're getting ready to go into the fiery furnace, which has been heated up seven times hotter. I think that's a poetic euphemism to say really, really, really hot. Because any time they would say seven, it was perfectly hot. And they were getting ready to be thrown in there, and they're saying, yes, O king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we believe our God is powerful enough to save us, and he will save us. But if not, if he chooses to do otherwise, we're still never going to serve these other gods that you're telling us we should serve. But if not, that's Bonhoeffer's attitude. That is the attitude that I think Mark is showing us in this incident with Jesus calming the storm that we need to develop if we're in a mature faith to say, yes, I believe God is all-powerful. Of course I believe that. But I also believe that if he chooses not to do something, not to intervene in a moment, even though we're cringing and we're looking at news that causes us to just weep as we see innocent people dying, we can still trust in his character because we know his heart. How do we know it? Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Can we trust God's heart? Moms, can we trust God's heart when we're heartbreaking over our kids? Our hearts are breaking over our kids and things that they're doing or not doing. Graduates, you'll come up to times when you're going to be facing situations that will feel like, wow, this boat's about to sink. Can you trust God's heart in those moments and say, but even if God doesn't immediately still the storm right now, I still trust that he's going to do the right thing for me. Can I still stay plugged in like the branch to the vine? 
And I would say, yes, absolutely. Keep clinging to him. Trust his heart. Look to your circumstance with the cross in the background because that's how we know we can trust God's heart. Let's pray. Father, whatever we're going through at the time when the storms rage, I pray that this incident will pop into our brains, that your Holy Spirit will bring it back up to mind to remind us that we can always trust your heart because we always know that your heart is for us, not against us, and you'll do the best thing for us for eternity and not just temporarily. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for the heart of Jesus and for him pouring himself out for us on our behalf. We want to relinquish our lives into his capable care. And no matter what is going on around us, may we say, but if not, we still trust Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.